Welcome to the Filmmaker Mixer podcast. My name is Andrew, and I'm joined alongside my co-host Jeff. As always, today we have on filmmaking duo Zubin and Ryan from the production company Echo Bend, and they bring such a positive and optimistic perspective to the craft of filmmaking. It's a great conversation. Hello, everybody. This is the Filmmaker Mixer podcast, and today we have Zubin Asaria and Ryan Turner from Echo Bend on the show. Echo Bend is a production company and post house based in Los Angeles. Zubin is head of production for Echo Bend Pictures, and Ryan is head of production in Echo Bend Post. These guys have been doing some really fun stuff. I mean, their their work is really stellar. It's 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 really great. You gotta check them out. Ryan's sci-fi short film, A Date in 2025, went viral on YouTube. And Zubin produced the music video Super Freaky Girl with Nicki Minaj, which was nominated for an MTV Music Video of the Year. So this is gonna be a fun conversation. Like I said, these guys do really amazing work. So guys, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you. Uh Zubin, let's start with you. Um, tell us about Echo Bend and uh you know, what was the genesis of the company and how did you and Ryan team up? Well, Ryan and I, I want to say we met, I don't know, back in 2017, I want to say at a, at a birthday party. And I feel like funny enough, just our, our meeting, it was like the, I feel like if we're being tropey, it was like a meet cute, right? Because I, I met him and I shook his hand and within like five seconds, I was like, this guy is going to be like a creative partner. I could tell immediately. And for, I want to say like two years, we would meet up as writing partners and we would write together. I feel like Ryan and I laugh about the fact that in those beautiful two years, we accomplished on page absolutely <laughs> nothing. But we, but we, but what we did build was like a rapport with one another, and, and really understood like our kind of our differentiated value, which was mine was in production and writing, and you know, and his was in writing and directing and post. And so in 2019, like kind of in this cyclical cycle, I I was doing a Facebook watch show. And I knew I was kind of, I was doing a couple and I really needed help. And I was like, hey, Ryan, I can produce and I can co-write and co-direct with you. And if you do post, we'll take this thing top to bottom. And we did. And even though we didn't have that much money, it, it just came out really, really well because we just overlapped perfectly. And we, you know, kind of in that moment, we're like, hey, you know what we should do? We should just make a couple. And what was the, what was the project you were doing? And again? so... It was called, well, that one that we got to collaborate on first was called Date of Honor. It was a little gotcha. show on Facebook Watch. I, I, wonder, I wonder how easy it is to even, even find. But um, that was like kind of our, our coming out together as actual collaborators on something with more than zero dollars. And it just worked so well. And so 2020, you know, top of 2020, we we're like, let's do it. Let's start this production company. And we started getting the website together and everything came together. And then boom, pandemic. We're like, oh, oh God, bad time. And we fully, fully resumed in January of 2021. We got the office and we kind of just started started from there. But we started with no clients, no money, just, you know, $7,000 music videos and just kind of started climbing. No kidding. That's there. cool. That's cool. It's it's funny because, um, you know, I have a couple of different writing partners. I, I write with uh, Andrew a lot. And it's interesting. I have this kind of theory that, you know, one person can bring something to the table a second person can bring something to the table. And then when the two combine, you create this third thing that's kind of magical and sounds like you guys are doing that. So that's cool. Well, that, that was our writing process as well. Funny enough, when we, when we teamed up together, we had like our, you find your own workflow right. with collaborators and even our writing process kind of reflected that because Ryan, we would talk about something. Ryan would do a vomit draft and then I would do a 90% rewrite on his draft. Then I would give it to him and he would do a 90% rewrite and we would find our way towards the middle. And that was a process that, simply worked for us and it just it kind of taught me in filmmaking you're like oh 
everybody's process of collaboration is yeah, different. No, makes sense. Makes works. sense. Ryan, um, let's roll back the clock a bit because I saw in your bio that you got interested in filmmaking when you got a Lego studio set as a as a kid. Tell me about that. I'm curious. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think I I always was drawn to making movies. It was just kind of uh, something I just found, found myself doing, whether it was a family vacation or just in free time, I would have friends over. And so, yeah, my uncle and aunt gifted me a Lego studio set, which was a, at the time um, you had little Lego Spielbergs and it was, a, you could do stop motion animation using the Lego software on your, on your computer. So I'll just, I would just use that to create little movies. And, and I was always drawn into making parodies. And then I, I remember there was, I was, it was like in seventh grade and there was an ancient Rome course I was taking and I, I convinced them to let me make a Lego movie instead of write a paper about ancient Rome and the gladiator combat. So I made like a Lego movie gladiator combat. That actually movie. sounds awesome. Um, that sounds great. It's stop motion. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was way more work than a paper would have been. Like stop motion animation is super, super tedious. But I found myself really being drawn to the fact that it didn't feel like work to me. And so I went to high school. I I, I was part of the the kind of broadcast films that went out to the school. And I just started making these parody videos of at the time it was Saw and I made a 300 parody and then I made a lightsaber Star Wars parody. And I just really had a lot of fun because it would play for the school and people in the hallway would be like, wow, I loved your sketch or this or what. And so I got instant feedback from making something. Um, and so then I, I realized when I went to college, I was like, wow, I could, if I could do this for a living, that'd be great. And I went to college and pretty much did the same thing. I kept making movies on the side. I went to UC Santa Barbara which is a theory school. So you generally watch movies and write papers on them. I, there's a theme here with papers somewhere. A lot, I don't like writing papers. So anytime I get a chance to not write papers, I would try to, um, but I would make movies on the side, web series on the side, like in, it was a party school. So I made a web series called Blackout Detectives, which when you, when you drank too much the night before you hired detectives to find out <laughs> what you did the night before. Um, <laughs> And so they'd figure out where you where you ended up, where you started and, and draw the line. In. And then I remember The Hangover came out shortly after. And I was like, well, that's that was my series, but like, a you know, a better done version of it. So. Um, so, yeah. And then I went to L.A. and did the same thing, just kept making movies. It's kind of you, you, you uh, could have continued the Lego thing and done every project, even your corporate videos and your your music videos all in Legos. <laughs> that's it would you know it's 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 kind of expensive those legos that's like those cases are every to get a new figure for every i think it's it's about the same cost as a real oh, wow. human actor so um <laughs> yeah you get like a little a little little lego set of harry potter for a hundred dollars or you can get someone that looks like dana radcliffe <laughs> and then you just put them in your movie yep so it's like 2020 and you guys decided to start a production company i'm always curious how did you guys come up with the name Echo Bend? Is there an origin story behind it or what, what's that story like? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there it's is. funny. There, well, there, there's definitely that meta element of like us going way too deep into different meanings of different words. We're like, what about like this word Sonder, which is about Sonder. like, yeah. where it's just like different. <laughs> I think it's like the, the idea that everyone has their own story. So we're like, oh, that's cool. It has like a deeper meaning, but like they're never that cool. And I think Zubin was the one that pitched it, but we, it when Zubin cool. and I were meeting up as riding partners, we were meeting up in Echo Park near Mohawk Bend. And I don't know how Zubin came up with it, but we are just pitching a bunch I, of different- I remember, actually, I distinctly remember where on the 10 freeway I was when I said it, because 
we, Ryan and I had gone through like a number of iterations, like Sonder, and we, we pitched so many things. And, you know, we had, we had girlfriends and friends and stuff like that. So obviously when you're forming things, you're like, hey, what do you think of this name and that name? And everybody has an opinion, a usually weirdly strong opinion on the name of something, right? And we had gone, I remember for a few weeks, we just gone through so many names that someone or a group of people just didn't like that much for some reason. And I remember I was driving and we had just gotten struck down, I think on Sonder or something like that. And I was like tired of it. I was like, Ryan, I was just like, this is silly. I was like, I bet you, I bet you Google sounded like a pretty dumb name when they did Google. I bet you Apple, like if you're building a technology company, why on earth would you call it Apple? But in hindsight, oh, it's so smart. And I was like the name, one day we're going to be huge and the name is going to sound so <laughs> smart, but, but it's going to be in hindsight. I was like, where do we meet? Echo, you know, Echo Park. We were at Mohawk Bend. Echo Bend. Do you like it? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, I like it too. I don't want anyone's feedback. It's going to sound really smart in, in hindsight. And then now people go, oh, I love Echo Bend. It has so much meaning. I'm like, oh God, thank, thank God that worked out. Cause it's like that could have gone, you know, that brazen kind of approach could have certainly backfired on us. We have so many. <laughs> We have so many, so many, uh, oh, the, the ripple, like, like in voices where echo and we're shaping the echo of storytellers. I'm like, oh, this is true. Yeah. But the real, the real story is, is actually, I was just like fed up on the 10, you know, that was, and then Ryan, Ryan agreed. And that was that. Yeah. I mean, so you guys make echo band and like, just fast forward into some of one of your most recent projects. I'd like to circle back to the music video, super freaky girl. How did you and Ryan get involved with that Zubin? That, um, well, I guess it kind of it kind of goes back to how what I was doing before we started the, the company. I came up as I was in production, and then I started becoming a line producer. And I came up in the niche world of of high budget music videos, which is you know if you're in the industry as as niche as our industry is, being in music high budget music videos is is so niche. But I happen to have experience there, and we had started you know the company. But similar to Ryan, we had skills that people knew us for before. And I got connected in to being, to doing music videos for Joseph Kahn. And for those who don't know who Joseph Kahn is, he's like one of the biggest music video directors of all time. He did all of Taylor Swift's videos, won the Grammys, won, you know, he did he, all the way back to Britney Spears' Toxic and the Backstreet Boys. Like he is like a legend of legend of legends. And I got connected through him and started doing I started, I became as like music video producer. And so we got access to these large scale jobs because he's, you know, a legend with like 30 years of experience doing it and, you know, started getting into those. And then originally it was just production, but then we started, you know, Ryan started coming in, especially on these complex shoots where you have to get a lot of shots in a little time. And Ryan, because he's our head of post and was always kind of post supervising all the jobs, whether or not, you know, we were brought on to do it over time. It was like, Hey, he's going to be behind the post process. Anyways, you may as well have him second unit directing those shots for a lot of, you know, for those videos, because it ends up being like a very important piece of the process and inch by inch it was, we were doing production and now we're doing, you know, post and bridging over VFX shots. And that's kind of how it all happened. Yeah. That's super interesting. And, you know, music videos are clearly, you know, heavy in production value. Many people may know, like maybe at least back in the day, you had like three or four locations that you really just made look really cinematic and you just shot the crap out of it. I'm curious for super freaky, you know, it has an amazing production value. How much input did you guys have on that part of the production in terms of just how it looked how, like how, how much control did you have as a producer? Mm, it's, I guess it, it depends 
on what aspects of control you're talking about. Cause that's the thing when it comes to music videos, it's always, there's always different stakeholders in the room. Cause sometimes you're on a video, you know, if you're on a Taylor Swift video, Taylor's calling the shots. In most of Joseph's videos, Joseph calls the shots because he's the heavyweight, right? And the artist, usually where the artist would call the shots, when you have a huge director, they're coming for the director. So the director calls the shots. And I would say like creatively, a lot of it does revolve around Joseph, for that stuff, revolve around Joseph and his vision. And I think we were there to kind of try to realize his vision alongside him and kind of, it's really building the train track one second ahead of when the train is there, right? And and so in some respects, you look, we, if I look at that video, it's like, yeah, the reason, it, even honestly, a good example is, is the fact that Alexander Ludwig is the star in that video, right? Why, like, why did a, a large TV and film actor, why was he in that video? There's like a lot of interviews and stuff about that because even in big, bigger budget music videos, it's very rare to see TV and film stars in them because they come together very quickly. It's kind of crazy. And for that one, Nikki, like a day or day and a half before the shoot, which again, is like 200 people on set. It's a massive shoot. Goes, I want to, for my Ken, I, I want like a recognizable star. And, you know, that's like so hard to put together in five seconds. That's not like, that's a huge ask. But it just happened that Alexander was my, my freshman year roommate <laughs> and he's like my brother. And so I called him and he was in Vancouver. I'm like, hey man, I need you to get, I need you to get on a flight in like two hours oh, and wow. come down, please. And he did. Yeah, and he did. It, he did it because he's like, again, he's not like a guy I know. He's like my brother. But like, and then the way Joseph incorporated him in, and there's like that dynamic. And in, in hindsight, you're like, oh, he he kind of is a Ken. And it, it all worked out. And it makes a lot of sense in hindsight. But in the moment, why did that happen? It's because there was a, a really big demand. There was no time. And one, you know, one train track in front of the other, who's available? I'm like, okay, the, there's only one movie star on the planet who is also one of my best friends. So that's the answer. And that to me is music videos, even no matter what scope, whether I'm doing a $7,000 one or like a one and a half million dollar one, doesn't matter. It always ends up at the same, which is like, who, who are your friends who are the most talented who are right next to you? Because that's, that's interesting. That's really cool. Um, I want to switch over to you, Ryan. I'm, I'm curious about um, the, the post process. I think the Conan Gray music video yours is really amazing. That's a great video. And uh, as I was watching it, I just love the color palette and the way you have, you know, the flowers were all kind of organized and the different flow of the colors. Is that something, was that a post thing? Did you, how did you build that? I'm, I'm assuming you, I'm assuming you supervise that in, in the post, but I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. No, I mean, every, every project that's come by has usually been through the two of us. Um, it's rare that we're not involved in some way. That is, that's a really talented director, Damian Blue. Um, and Damien works with a really talented DP, Quinn Feldman. Quinn generally loves to shoot and film, as does Damien. So that that premise of that music video, Zubin can speak to more of the impetus of it, but essentially it was, we're going to go out to the flower fields, bring a 35 millimeter camera and shoot a cool music video. And so um, it's such <laughs> a, it's, and uh, in post, uh Damien ed edits his own stuff so um the big the big help with what we're trying to do is oversee and hand it off like for the people that don't know general post processes as 
there's a lot of, and I was this way too. There's a lot of one-stop shop people that are directors and that are, that also edit. I'm a director that also edits. That's how I got into it. Um, so Damien is very self-sufficient from that perspective. In this, in that project, there was actually a skyline with a lot of houses in it, but that didn't look as pretty. So uh, pretty much any time we're not facing a blue sky, uh, we had to remove a lot of houses from the skyline. So that was the big involvement that that we as Echoven gave support to outside of just helping Damien kind of get it through notes and get some get get it across the finish line. Um, we we have color colorists that we work with. We have colorists in house. Um, depending on the project, we'll go to one of many different people. So once the cut is approved by the client, which in this case is the artist and the label, um, the label, the one that funds the video, um, then we then we generally take it and we polish it, we color correct it, we do a lot of the cleanup of the skyline. Um, but yeah, I 100% agree. It's a beautiful, beautiful video. Uh, it's really cool in the community that we've built up, and that's a big thing with Echo Ben in general is we've. I, I came from the world of, hey, let's all get together and make videos on the weekend for fun. And when you get to L.A., oftentimes you'll find your community, but it takes a lot of sifting through people. It takes a lot of working with people. It takes a lot of building that trust. Um, and so over the course of the 12 years that I've been here, I've, I've, I've known a lot of really wonderful people, Zubin obviously included. So when we moved into this building, uh, I started just bringing by this community of people that I really trust. And so the community that you're working with, the teams that you're working with, the the support network that you're working with, I'm a big fan of just having it all be friends that we also really respect. And so everything on our site are made by really talented directors that, that we really respect, that we've organically met through either ourselves or different introductions. Um, and yeah, I think in general, we're we we have our hands in supporting anything that comes across our desk and whether we're fully doing post which we we can do or like we're we're just overseeing or helping get some vfx shots we we like to just support the projects that yeah andrew and i uh, refer to that as as finding your tribe you know we have a uh, other filmmakers and actors and so forth that we've had on the show and you know they say the similar story and that's one of the good things about going to film school you know for people who still uh, want to go that route you know, that's where you meet people that you want to work with. Um, and and even if you're just jumping out making films for the first time, you know, you start working with people and you you get that shorthand and you kind of build that, like you said, community. Um, that's really interesting. I want to pivot over something else that I'm curious about. Um, I do a lot of corporate videos and a lot of times it's, you know, pitching the concept to the client. You know, do they like the concept and then you develop it and, and build it out and then you either get the job or you don't based on that. Is is music video similar to that? I mean, do you come in, uh, are you involved in pitching the concept or do they come to you after the concept's developed? I'm just wondering what that process is like. I'd say every single one is, is different and it doesn't even matter what the scope is. Some artists will, it's, it's funny enough, I would actually say that the really small videos the artists are still usually early in their career, so they're extremely involved and they often come with a vision of exactly what they want and then they're just looking for someone kind of to babysit and execute it because they're not very far removed from it was them themselves, you know, doing it. So they're they're still very much in that. And on the much larger ones, those the, the artists are usually very far removed from coming up with concepting. So oftentimes they'll hand it off to 
you know, a, a director or something, someone who has like decades of experience or is like really big and just goes, hey, like this person has a track record of coming up with great stuff. I'll, I'll just defer to what they want to do. And then there'll be some yes, no's in that process. Um, but like every single one completely different. Sometimes they go, like, I don't know. Like an example, we did a, a series of visualizers for Ava Max's new album and um Ava, Ava came to the really talented Marilyn Hugh, who's a creative director who does a lot of creative directing for Skrillex and other artists, said, hey, here's my album. Marilyn Hugh puts together a creative deck with Ava's oversight. Um, and she's pretty big. So she was pretty hands on with that specific uh, series of visuals. But like it's still coming from Marilyn's mind in collaboration with Ava. Ava goes, hey, I have this idea of, of me uh, in a bed of diamonds, like American beauty. Right. So then, and then after that, that team comes to Zubin and Echo Bend and, and then I ended up directing it, uh, with basically executing on the vision that they, they all came up with. So like doing the logistics of the vision, but then there's other briefs where it'll be like a label comes and says, here's a song, here's a budget and pitch your vision basically. See, see um, the finish line. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, like I did a, a a video for Monster X, which is a K-pop band. Um, and basically they came with the song. Uh, they said, hey, the band's not going to be in it. We just need a visual to go with this song. It was called Late Night Feels. And so uh, I had an idea for this concept of a bunch of people in boring settings, whether it's work or whether it's at their, their couple sitting in bed together uh like just kind of people that are in boring situations or at the bar about to get kicked out and then they get sucked into this magical world of pajamas and dancing um and so pitch that put a deck together the the band either could have notes maybe doesn't have notes and then uh and then if they like the concept then you pretty much get the green light to make your concept or you're expected to make your concept for the budget that they put on the initial bid which is where i think some people might get in some issues if they if they come up with too cool of a concept and then they didn't really think about how they're going to execute it on the, the limited budget. But yeah, like Zubin said, it really is very uh, dependent on uh, a lot of different facets, but the artists, some artists like to be hands-on other artists just go, give me a video. Um, so it's, it's, and, and some labels are more hands-on, some are not. So it's just, it's very variable, but um, the overall thing being once the creative idea is locked in, then there's the execution and that's, and everybody's making whatever idea was greenlit. Did you ever have a project where the concept was so uh, kind of out there that you had to really come up with an out-of-the-box production approach? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that didn't that didn't take long. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, like it's funny because like sometimes it's sometimes it's not even like a money. Sometimes it's usually a money thing, obviously. But then, yes, there are things that are are really outside the box that that become like very challenging and then it really especially when your budget and your timelines are very limited it comes down to which of your friends is super talented and willing to do you a favor um that's what i found like we did a, you know we did a, a a music video where like in the music video like in the ask it's like hey there's people dancing on moving cars there's a there's a car that turns into a transformer and dances alongside the artist in sync, right? These are like crazy, crazy asks, right? 
but like it happens that at that time, and it was in the first year of our company. So we hadn't even really built out the, now it's like different. We built out the post-production company. We have the effects in house, you know, like there's a lot more that we can, we can do ourselves and have confidence with, but that video was in the first year of the company. And it's like, Oh my gosh. And it was for Joseph. And so the expectation is it's going to be, you know, one of the biggest videos in the world. That's what it needs to look like. And then it come, then it came down to, you know, I knew a bunch of stunts people. So there's like the car stuff and then there's VFX comping. And then we are also have a partner who's one of the best VFX houses in the world who basically did it at cost. And so at the end, you have a transformer and you have dancers on cars and you have like crazy stuff, but it really goes, it comes down to the reason that that was executed on budget and on time. And at that level was simply, you have to know the person who can operate at that level who is willing to do you that favor. Otherwise, I don't even know how you would go about doing that, right? That's interesting. That makes sense though. That makes a lot of sense. And obviously you've build, built built uh, good relationships to be able to you know get these people to help you out on those kinds of things. Well, it's, it's workflow. You have to be, because it's the reason you can, you know, we can ask partners to do things that are pretty big on a tight timeline for maybe less money is because it's not the only thing we're doing with them that year. You know, we did with the same company, we did like a, a spot for um, a bigger job, which was a, a, a spot for Cruel Summer, um, the show for, for Hulu. And we ended up doing a shoot that's, that takes place on a dock, but the whole dock was on a blue screen stage and they it built the entire environment. And that's a bigger thing, right? And so I was like, hey, here's the small thing, but there's bigger things. And you kind of go back and forth, making sure that everybody's always taken care of across the board. And that as a company is what we try to do for everybody, right? There's big things, there's small things, there's big money, there's no money. It doesn't matter as long as throughout the whole, your partners and the people who are with you on the ride know that like you're always going to take care of them in the net, right? They're always going to be better off than not helping. Right. That makes sense. Um I want to pivot over to something else. I know you guys are doing a lot of work in the narrative world as well. Um, tell us about me, myself, and the void. Yeah, I mean that's a that. So when we started the company, I think a lot of people smartly start companies going, "We do this specific lane. We do uh, like whether it's for me as a freelancer, like we do corporate comedy, or we do high budget music videos, or we do X, or we do X. We're like we want to do everything." any project comes along as long as it's cool. And so we had a longer term vision of basically doing features and TV, but that's a bigger gargantuan task than doing like a two day shoot or a one day shoot. Right. So when we started a couple months in, um, uh, my old ex roommate, Ryan Blewett brought to, brought to us a script and a director that, uh, who wrote uh, co-wrote and, and wanted to direct the script. I'd actually known this director, Tim, Hataki, uh, uh, I've known him for a bit. And I was a big fan of his work. I was like, I, we've kind of both been directors. We, I always was an admirer of his. And so um, Zubin and I checked the script out and we both really resonated with it. Tim and Ryan were going to go and basically shoot it that fall, regardless of, of if we helped or not, because um, that's the kind of people they are. And we read the script. We're like, well, this deserves uh, some help. It deserves to do things legitimately and this is like something i think uh which is part of a bigger conversation because a lot of filmmakers are like me from the sense of like they've come from i just did stuff for fun with friends right that's your default but when you're doing things in the industry 
there's a way of like, well, you have to raise the money this way. You have to get the actors this way. You have to get the crew this way. It has to be union. It has to be this. It has to be that. You have to go through. You have to have distribution deals. You have to have marketing contracts. Like you have all these things that you have to have in line to make a movie through the quote unquote Hollywood system. And so when you're making it like, yeah, they could have gone and filmed it on the on on, on the weekends with some friends and got some cameras. But we know like from production that there's a certain caliber and, and, and a way that we like to do things that we could offer a lot to this project. Not only the fact that we owned a camera, but we had a great we have a great network of really talented artists that, you know, when you're putting together a cinematographer, when you're putting together a composer, all these people uh, are, are people that need to be at a certain caliber if you're trying to do something and make a splash with a movie. So we took that script and yeah, we were still going to shoot it the fall, but we really helped to, to raise some financing for it, put together the proper team, give it the support of our infrastructure that could allow it to basically be something. And in post, it was the same thing. I edited it with Ryan and Tim and that was like a seven month process because it was doing it on top of everything else that we're doing to keep the lights on in the company. And um that was very much a movie that was a sweat, blood, sweat and tears movie doing it. The let's just doesn't care about permission. Let's just make this happen. And that's even how, you know, the wonderful Kelly Marie Tran got on board. It was a similar thing. We went to CAA. We had some connections to her. We put an offer in and we were going to shoot it no matter what. And she really resonated with the script, really liked Ryan and Tim and, and decided to come on board. And so, yeah, we, we made that project. It, it premiered back in June we're really proud of it. I think it's going to be something that when audiences see it, they really resonate with. Um, and yeah, right now it's it's playing. It just played in Italy last Friday. Uh, it has a couple more festivals coming up. But in the meantime, we're looking uh, and talking with a few different sales avenues to see uh, how we can partner with people and, and get it across the finish line and, and get it out to distribute to audiences. I was going to say, I think that that movie for me was like a big learning experience that like philosophically about filmmaking that we've now applied to everything, which was, and it's kind of how we run the company, which is that movie, the train is like train is leaving the station with or without us. Right. And we knew that no matter what the train is leaving the station with or without us. And so it's, Hey, jump on or get off and it's totally fine. And it created a sense of urgency, which got things going. But the more that, you know, we jump on the train because we're like, look, train is leaving the station with or without us. And we love this and we want to be a part of it. So let's jump on. But then other people saw us jump on the train and they go, well, if Echo Ben's on, I should jump on too. And more and more people jump on and it actually makes the, you know, the film can't be made by two people. It needs to be, or one person. It's, it's a group effort, but sometimes people need to see more and more people jump on to have that belief. And I wish it wasn't that way, but it's, it's not even true to just filmmaking. It's, you know, investing and companies in general, people like knowing that other people are into it. And it becomes a manifesting thing, especially in filmmaking where, because, you know, now there's two, now there's four people, now there's 10 people, now there's 20 people. And, and that's how it comes to fruition. But it's similar to our company. It like, it was a microcosm. Because I was like, our company, it was just, you know, it was, it was me and Ryan. It, you know, big clients don't trust two people with huge things. They simply don't. They trust entities with large quantities of people and capability. But really, we started the same way going, hey, we're trains leaving the station. We're going to do this with or without everyone's help. So if you jump on, like, great. 
And, you know, you get one person jumped on and goes, I believe in you. And then a fourth person goes, oh, my God, the third person jumped on. I'll jump on, too. And before you know it, you have this large machine of people believing in one another and the quality of work and the output of work goes way up. And then it's, again, a self-fulfilling prophecy where they go, oh, look at how much work and the quality of work that gets done here. That's amazing. But the reality is it's, it's amazing because everybody came together. If it was still me and Ryan two and a half years later, we would not be doing the level of work and the quantity of work because it takes a village. But sometimes the village needs to see a village in order for it to exist. So it was just a weird, it was a takeaway. Yeah. And confidence is contagious. I mean, it really is. Certainly. Yeah. And I mean, that kind of brings me to the next question, which is like, how do you guys go about selecting and collaborating with, you know, actors, crew members, and even projects? Do you guys tend to use the same actors and crew members over and over, try to work with new people a lot? And maybe even how do you accept projects? Maybe do you tend to accept projects on if the people who are involved with them, you've done business with them before? Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is, this is part of a, I think we have a kind of home base in our offices. And what we tell people is through proximity, a lot of magic can happen. And as people are moving more towards working remotely, which I totally get and understand, uh, we really do like having a community where we can kind of show up and be around like-minded people and share ideas and kind of that idea of the rising tide raises all ships. So more often than not, a lot of uh, our jobs and opportunities become through proximity who we're seeing day in, day out, and who's already showing up and being around. And then we just further collaborate with them. Like the other day, there was an opportunity to make a project in Vancouver. And so I look at one of our directors, Quinn, and I say, hey, are you interested in going to Vancouver next week? So there's a there's an organic kind of very, uh, I would say kind of ethereal element to that. There's also a sense of uh, like the the network and context that we know of people that have already done a lot of wonderful things for us. I also just like testing. There's that balance. And you're talking about like uh, find your find your crew or find your squad. Or I think forgot the exact verbiage you're using. Tribe. Earlier, but tribe. Tribe. <laughs> one of those synonyms. Um, find your tribe. And like my overall opinion is, yes, find your tribe. But your tribe is not a finite thing. What I think ends up happening so often in this industry is, you know, everyone's trying to get behind the gate into the castle courtyard so they could have the feast and, you know, quote, unquote, make it in their mansion or wherever they want to be. And uh, so everyone's trying to fight for that. And when you get there, you're like, oh, cool, we made it. My friends are here. Let's raise the drawbridge and close off the wall again uh, because we don't want anyone else to ruin our courtyard experience. But like, I think there's such a, there's something to be said about constantly growing and constantly growing your connections, constantly growing your network, constantly bringing in new people and not bringing in new people from the perspective of I've chewed up and spit these people out, which often happens is like, oh, I, I, I'm going to use you until you're burnt out. And then I'm going to throw you out to the, to the dogs and I'm going to replace you with someone that's not been burnt out yet. I don't, I'm not, I'm a big advocate of, of not that because I had to experience a lot in my coming up of, different people attempting to do that to me. Um, so, but I, I do think it's like, once you've found your people, you have great people, but there's also even more great people because the people that you know, know more people and the people they know, know more people. So you could keep this tidal wave or this, this kind of army, if you will, of wonderful people that through word of mouth, through knowing people, it just keeps expanding upon itself. And then you just have a never ending a never-ending uh, a, a, a community, essentially. 
And I think that community feeds into productivity because mm-hmm. I think a big sort of, it's sad that it's a paradigm shift for us, but it is, is that in the spirit of that networking out, the the industry, because I know Ryan, I came up in, you know, PAing on Marvel and Netflix sets and I was at the bottom of the totem pole. And I wouldn't say that I was treated hostile, but it certainly wasn't well. And Ryan had the same experience, obviously coming up as an AE and an editor, just kind of getting chewed up and spit out. And the industry does it because they can, because they know that, yes, one person comes in and the moment that they get chewed up and burned out, there's a 10,000 people who want that one person's spot and they know that. And so they just keep that grind going and they, they purposefully kind of like kind of block you out because it's for them, it's, it's, it, it seems sustainable. But the reality that we're trying to paradigm shift that we think is working is we see the industry. It's like, you know, it's like a jungle and every person is bushwhacking with a machete. And it's so hard just to get to any semblance of a clearing ever. It's like a miracle every time you do. And the moment you take a break, you're back in the jungle. And the industry, whenever someone, typically whenever someone comes up behind you and walks on your trail the easy way, you know, the industry has this way of looking backwards and being like, no, I I bushwhack this trail, go bushwhack your own, right? And that's how it typically works, which is that earn your stripes kind of thing, go in the mail room and you only can make it once you've gone through the, the terrors that other people have done. And what we've done at our, in, in our company is people walk down the path that we've already bushwhacked. They don't go through the traumas that we went through. And they come up behind us with their machete. And instead of saying, hey, go, go carve your own path, we go, hey, stand alongside us. We're here right now. But now if you bushwhack next to me, now there's two people. Now there's three people. And everybody's running up behind us on the path we've already made. And we start bushwhacking even faster and more efficiently because the whole community has gone down this little area of path that we've gone, right? And it actually helps us. It's not like a, it, it doesn't hurt us to have everybody stand alongside us and do that. But then when people see, oh, look, that path is growing faster and, and longer, how are you doing it? And it's very simple. It's like, we're just not telling people, go fight it out on your own just because that's what we did. It, it's, that's not how you, you, you know, increase productivity. You don't increase productivity. Of, of artists by telling them to go and go and die the same way you did. It's a miracle we've made it this far anyways, right? And so that is something that's kind of built into our ethos. Interesting. That kind of leads me to my next question. And you may have answered it, but I'm curious, kind of scaling back a little bit. I know Echo Bend is more than just you and Ryan now, Zubin and Ryan now. But I'm curious, since you guys kind of started it in 2020, just the two of you at the beginning, what do you think sets your filmmaking duo apart from others in the industry and what makes you unique? Where is there like... For example, any specific themes or messages that consistently appeared in your work early on that you maybe carried through the years? I know Ryan's I mean, answer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, because I have my director voice, which um, which I obviously have strong opinions about because I've, that's what I've been doing and telling stories of. The company's voice as a as a extension, I think, has similarities, but it we're we're still organically finding that. Um, I think we have taste, you know, we have like Zane who on our team is up, uh, heading up our development. Like she has wonderful taste. We have amazing team members that have taste. And like, I think taste is a, is a constant refinement thing. It's not like a fixed thing. I think you, it, if I make a stand up show to an audience and I think something's funny and the audience doesn't find it funny. And I, I then say, Hey, well, that's my taste. And that like, screw that audience. I feel like most people would benefit from maybe learning from that experience and, and curating their taste a little bit more. So maybe that next time when you go to an audience, they laugh. Right. So it's like, 
I think taste is a constant refinement, but yeah, as in the, in the company, I'm, I'm generally an optimistic person. So, um, me as a director i like i like optimistic sci-fi which is a weird thing to say but like i like instead of dystopian i like utopian because i think that's much more interesting i think as a country too like we're in a country where we don't have to fight for food to an extent like the average american citizen's quality of life is it a decent standpoint if you're gonna ever roll the dice and be a citizen of a country like this is a great time to roll it in terms of like just where what we can do from money wise and obviously there's still lots of problems but like I'm more interested in what happens when we don't have to worry about food on the table. What do we worry about next? Um, so there's that element, the void movie. It has, uh, we talk a lot about like uh, our projects wanting to touch on a bunch of different facets, but essentially the mind, the heart and the soul are kind of what we want to touch all three. Um, I think the void successfully does that. It's a very funny movie that has a lot of heart behind it that also speaks to some deep reflection issues and kind of tries to normalize going to therapy for men, which is something that I know I really needed to hear uh, when I, when I was very kind of opposed to it. Um, so we're drawn to those kinds of stories, but like if, if for, for some reason someone came to us with a great horror script that had nothing to do with, you know, from the outside or heart, uh body and soul but like or heart uh mind and soul but we we all really resonate with it then we'd make that film i don't think we're like curating from the perspective of we just like good stories that resonate with audiences i think in general audiences like to i, I like to make stuff that is an enjoyable experience that you can walk away maybe with some new uh insight or at the very least maybe with a smile on your face um but uh but yeah, like, I don't think that limits what we make or do. It's just kind of something that I feel really called to. I don't know, Zubin, if there's other stuff. I mean, well, I, I guess like for me to distill that that question and like, I guess, I think the theme of Ryan's work, like really distilled is, yeah, it's a, he likes sci-fi, but I guess optimism is the key word there. And I'd say like that does translate, like our, our, our company ethos really does revolve around optimism. But I was just thinking right now about the nature of optimism. And I think something that like, there's something to be said about the fact that like optimism can only to me really exist in, in the face of adversity, because you're not really an optimist if everything in life is just going perfectly. I guess you could, but it's not quite to me as powerful as optimism in the face of adversity, which is why I think it resonates in Ryan's work, but it resonates with everyone at the company because we know that Hollywood and making movies is such an uphill battle, right? No one here comes from billionaires. So it's not like, it's not like, oh, we can get grandfathered in. None of us really came from the industry. So we don't, we don't have that, that inherent in. So really we, as a community, I think at the very beginning knew this is like a, an enormous uphill battle. And, and nonetheless, the spirit of optimism, it, it brings hope when maybe on a rational level, if you go by the numbers, there shouldn't be any hope like or there should be such a slim amount but optimism is what changes your odds of making things even when there's there's no mathematical reason there's no external thing that's changed right it's that inner drive and i've just found thus far in this industry it turns out that kind of no matter what your circumstance your odds like in, extrinsically are all the same it's very low 
And so why do some people make it? And why are you certain that some people make it? Some people won't. It's the intrinsic optimism and that work, you know, that kind of working mentality that ends up becoming everything because we all start the race on the whole going the same speed at the same level. So that simply is not going to be enough. And I guess there's one little thing I'll, I'll add if for, especially for people who are trying to come into the industry that are, you know, kind of are especially told by family members. I know it's a big thing where it's, Hey, you're going into Hollywood, trying to make films. Don't you know, that's a one in a million endeavor. And looking at the math of this industry, the truth is, if you just look at the numbers, maybe it is a one in a million endeavor, but that actually is, it's true on the surface but it's, it's not true if you kind of know what's actually going on. And I, I use this metaphor a lot. And I think anyone listening, if, especially if you're trying to break in, I feel like this is to me, this is, if you want to make it in, in filmmaking in general, it all boils down to this. Like making in the film industry is like a train coming to the station for five seconds a day at random every 24 hours. And a lot of people they show up at the station for one or two minutes because that's the time they'll dedicate. That's the work ethic and the time they'll dedicate to it. And you, know, they show up for two minutes a day, every day. And they go, look, five seconds out of 24 hours, my, my chances are slim to none. They show up for two minutes and they don't, they don't get on the train and they go, okay, I'll come back tomorrow. And then they have that one friend who showed up at the station for one minute and got on the train and goes, oh, that person's so lucky they won the lottery. And the truth is they did. And so when someone goes, oh, you know, not that we've made it, made it, but we're kind of, we, we've gone onto the train. We, we somehow got on that train and people go, oh, you're so lucky. The chances were five seconds out of 24 hours. And you go, yes, that is true. But the reality is that everybody else showed up the station for one, two, five minutes, 15 minutes. And we showed up at the station for 12 hours a day, right? So statistically within two days, you should be able to get on the train. And it, we are in the right place at the right time simply because we are always there, right? And if you kind of, if, by, if you don't get on that train within a week, statistically, you're, that's so unlikely. And, and that's the reality. It's simply who shows up time and time and time and time again, because eventually, if you're everywhere all the time, you will be in the right place at the right time. And it's, it's just it's simply harder work than most people want to put in. And it's just, it's really hard. It's not to say that that showing up at the station 12 hours a day is easy. It is actually very difficult. But at the same time, your, your odds, your one in a million odds went actually dramatically up. And that is, that's kind of how our company came to be. We just simply showed up at the station for every person in every direction as, as long as we could so that eventually it connects. And that to me has been like the game changer of, of making things happen. That's a great attitude. It's a great attitude. And, and, you know, optimism in the face of adversity and touching on mind, heart, and soul. I don't know if we can end on anything more positive. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> well, <laughs> we try. Yeah. I, I, I've been accused of being overly optimistic before. So, um. <laughs> well, Zubin and Ryan, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you guys tonight. I really appreciate you taking the time for Andrew and myself. You're really creating some amazing work. Uh, it, it, the, the, the work speaks for itself. It's fantastic. And I hope you'll come visit us again on the podcast soon. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure talking with both of you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Filmmaker Mixer Podcast, a podcast created and hosted by filmmakers Jeff Stolen and Andrew Lamping and produced by Melody Lopez. Our theme song was composed by the man whose music enchants both body and soul, Stephen D. Bennett. Make sure to follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on and stay tuned for future episodes.